God. Well, I'm happy to uh, spend some time together with the likes of you. Those that get lost in worship. Those that enjoy the word of God. Those that are saying, I'm going to take a Saturday and just spend it in the presence of the Lord. That's not very normal, and I commend you for such hunger and desire and such sickness of love that says, I'll give up my, my life to be able to taste this king and know the kiss is divine. Yeah. Rest in mine and vanish time because he shimmers and he shines. Praise God. I uh, haven't come today to, with a hammer to dash you, a whip to whip you, or a measure to measure you. I've come to speak of him who is honeycomb, him who is choicest wine, him who is resplendent with glory. He has this ability to blind us to everything else. He has the ability to cause even the things of this world that seem so heavy to become light. He has the ability to cause the things that seem to be so difficult to have an ease to them. He has this ability to take the sting out of death, and not only the sting out of death, but all the death in its preliminary forms that we experience in this fallen world, so that we can live above with him in the heights where he himself dwells and look down from that high place and enjoy in that high place even while on the lower place. The simultaneous dwelling, as the writer of Ephesians would call it, you are in heaven and on the earth. You have Christ to gaze upon, to listen to, and to lean upon, even in the midst of a world that puts pressure on you and has trials and tribulations of all kinds. We have a higher way, and it is a man. We have a higher truth, and it is a man. And we have a higher life, which is also a man, Christ the Lord. So this is what I want to speak to you about today. I actually was asking the Lord, how do you, do you want me to talk to your people today? And he just has this he just has this similar heart, and <laughs> he says the same thing almost every single time I ask him. I say, Lord, what do you want to say to your people? And he says to me, tell them, oh, how I love thee, let me count the ways. Oh, you have a God that watches your sitting down and your standing up. You have a God that is so about you and for you and desires you that he orchestrates everything in your life for your own favor. Even the difficult things, he turns them around to be in your favor. This is just how he is. He's so madly in love with you and so ultimately sovereign that he is able to orchestrate a symphony of love for you in the midst of all of the harsh sounds of this world. That's our Christ. And I want to encourage you that he loves you warts and all. Uh, I want to encourage you that he has such a tender heart for you that even when you feel like you're not measuring up to what you think you need to be, 
there he is bending down and feeding thee. <laughs> that he has such a tenderness towards you that he can actually say, and this is not just poetry, it's a poetic understanding of God's great and matchless love, that you make his actual heart beat with the glance of your eye. That's crazy. That you can affect God by just turning your attention to him. The scripture says in Psalm 145 that God humbles himself to look upon the earth. In other words, he's so magnificently glorious and so other that to even give attention to this world is an act of humility. And yet a love so divine that when you one speck upon this planet that he humbles himself to look upon, when you look up at him, you make his heart race. Oh, anybody who's had kids, you understand something of a parental feeling. And the sound of a daughter's voice can, can literally go through your entire being. I remember being on trips and I would call home. And my youngest daughter, she's going to be 16 now, but she was three or four then. And she'd pick up the phone and she'd go, hello. <laughs> and the sound of her voice would literally melt everything about me. Didn't matter what was going on in my life. In that moment, by hearing her voice, everything just kind of melted away. That is a wonderful picture pre prepared for you by God to give you a glimpse of what he feels when you turn your attention towards him. Could it be, oh, listen, you fill his heart with so much joy that if he showed it to you, you wouldn't even believe it. It's just too much. You say, Eric, but how can I know what you're saying is true? Well, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means maximum demonstration of love was made for you before you even knew of him. Before you could even love him, he maxed out his expression of love. That's insane. Anybody that has a hard time loving Jesus need just only to look upon the cross. And as they look upon the cross, they see a love so divine, a love so true, a love so pure, a love that actually robs you of the ability to find satisfaction in anything else. I've been reading the letters of Samuel Rutherford for about five years now, no, no, for about, about five months or so, uh, maybe a year. And he is put in prison and he says, when they grab him and they put him in prison, he writes to one of his friends and he says, they don't realize, but they just put me into the arms of my beloved. <laughs> he says, this prison has become a palace to me. He said, Christ comes down to me in my prison and goes back to heaven with my heart. <laughs> There's a sweet exchange that a man finds inside of the gospel love of God that literally shatters all of the lower things of this world that so often take over a man's conscience, consciousness, his conscience, his understanding, his whole makeup on the inside. The rest of the world is jarred by these things. But in the gospel, we're freed from their power. In the gospel, we have a liberty we are delivered out from the lower system that is ran by oppression and depression. And we have life everlasting in him. That's not just living forever, as you know. 
It is life, God's supernatural animation by the sharing of his own life supply with you. The substance of God's own person has been shared with humanity in the gospel. Oh, praise God. Uh, John and I talk constantly, and when we start talking about the gospel, we bite our fists and bang our heads against the glass because it's like, this is too good to be true, this gospel. You couldn't even have made it up. It's so good. A gospel love like this. Let me just give you an example. So if in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, how many of you know what I'm talking about when I say the Old Covenant? In the Old Covenant, you have God reaching for man like this. And man, through the prophets, reaches and adheres to God. And you have God and you have man making a covenantal agreement. But what we see over and over again in the Old Testament, if you've read through it even once, you'll realize man keeps letting go of God's hand and walking around. <laughs> then the, co- the prophets come and they say, go back, go back, go back. And they go over and they go, oh, yes, we repent. And they grab God's hand again. And then there's an agreement and things go well. And then they let go and they walk around again. And they realize, you realize quickly, that man is unable to keep his end of the bargain every single time. God doesn't move. Man keeps wandering. That's the problem. You see it over and over and over again, how they forget the Lord, forget the Lord. So God has this eternal idea, which is specifically connected with the whole situation that I just described, knowing it was going to be that way. He had a pre-plan of showing humanity, you can't keep it. It's impossible. You're a wanderer. And so he says, I will myself go into humanity and grab my own hand so that the bond will be as perfect as I'm making it with my own self. (laughs) That means that God himself has fulfilled all the requirements that mankind has to be in unbroken communion and connection with God. That's the new covenant. As... As Paul writes, what the law was powerless to do, God did. God did it for you. This is a new covenant, a wonderful covenant. It's a covenant of enjoyment. It's a covenant of unbroken union with God that's not based upon your performance or anything you can do. It's based upon Christ in you the hope of glory, where you access him, not by works and not by anything you could ever do, but by simple surrender to what Jesus Christ has done. The preeminence of Christ, the perfections of his work, and then his presence within. This is the gospel. And John and I talk a lot, and we we realize that the number one problem in the church is people don't believe the gospel. You say, Eric, but we know the gospel. Everybody knows the gospel. That's the problem is everybody just steps past it. And they think that the gospel is the beginning, the entrance in. No, we don't just live because of the gospel. We now live by the gospel. It is that glorious, I need you, Jesus, the day you came to the Lord, what'd you do? What'd you do? You said, oh, Lord, I need you. I'm a sinner and I need you. Is that how you came to the Lord? That is the gospel and that is the gospel life. 
Meaning you don't pass that, you live in that. Lord, I need you again. Oh, Lord, I need you again. As you received him, so walk in him. But as he says to the Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? Who tricked you to think that you have to move past the gospel? Who tricked you to make you think that you can perfect in your own self what God began by himself? And what happens is we slip into these, we get on this treadmill of performance, treadmill meaning you are sweating a lot and going nowhere. We get on this treadmill of performance, and then we realize why we're not happy. I'm telling you right now, most Christians, if you were to take the entire conglomerate of Christianity in America and the world, and you put them all in one room, most of them would not be happy people. Have you noticed that it's this way? Most Christians live oppressed and depressed. You want to know why? It's because there isn't simple faith and trust in what Jesus has done. Listen to me. When you believe the gospel, then you realize you stand before God as Christ because Christ stood before God as you. That, that statement right there is a modern encapsulation of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And you begin to realize, as Charles Spurgeon also said, that you have a great need for Christ, but you have a great Christ for your need. You say, Eric, what are you doing preaching the gospel to us? Absolutely. Because the gospel is something I'm not ashamed of, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It will cause you to receive power. You receive power. That's the spirit. You receive the spirit through the gospel. I would encourage you to live every single day of your life by remembering the gospel. The most important daily habit a man can possess, a Christian can possess, is to remind himself of the gospel. Let me just talk to you about a little bit about how this, how this works. In the book of Romans, you have chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. These are, this is like a trinity of understanding God and the Christian life. Let me just explain them to you for you that don't know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are familiar with 6, 7, and 8, you'll understand exactly what's going on. But what it's like is like three different marriages, okay? Romans 6 is like a woman who is married to this man who beats her and hates her, speaks down to her. She can't overcome him. He overcomes her. This is marriage to the flesh. Romans 6 shows you that you have got to die to that marriage. And when that fleshly man dies, that woman now is free. She's free from what? The oppression of sinful desires, the oppression and the dominion of sin. How many of you know the dominion of sin? We all knew it at one point. And that's a marriage to a man who mistreats you. But in the gospel, putting faith in Jesus Christ, that man dies. And you are free, just like a woman who is, whose husband dies, and now he's no longer in the house because he's dead. When, whose husband dies, he's no longer involved in the life because he's gone. And she's free from the bondage of being with him. And I say bondage with reference to the old man, right? There's a freedom there. But what happens is, is a lot of people 
die to the old man, and they're like, I don't have to live in sin anymore. I'm free. Jesus has taken away my sin from me and its dominion, and I'm free. But then they go into chapter 7, and they marry a man that looks a lot like Jesus because he's perfect. He's so perfect and so spotlessly clean that he says to her things like, hey, I want you to have breakfast on the, dinner, uh, on the table tomorrow at 7 o'clock. And then the woman wakes up early, she makes breakfast, and then she brings it there, and it's, he's there at 7 o'clock, and she gets her at 7.02. And he looks at her, and then he goes, I said 7 o'clock. You're a liar. What? what? This perfect man is accusing me of being a liar? Yeah, because he's called the law. And many women marry, they leave the marriage to having to walk in the sinful desires, and then they marry this man called the law, which they realize quickly, you cannot please him. He is harsh, and he is death to you. In other words, he kills your joy, he kills your peace, and he's always showing you how you will never measure up, because he's way perfect than you'll ever be. You got it? Understand? This is where most people live their Christian lives. They live married to the law, and they're miserable. But there's a third marriage, and it's in Romans chapter 8. And in this marriage, the husband looks at her, and he says, you know what? I'm not asking you to make breakfast for me at 7 a.m. I'm making it for you. I'm not asking you to do all these things for you. I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to do all of these things for you because I love you. And I'm going to literally take my perfections. He's as perfect as the law, but he becomes the fulfillment of the law for you. <laughs> and so what he does is he treats you so perfectly and he actually loves you so endlessly. And he brings to you a joy because everything is taken upon himself and you are free just to enjoy him. That's Romans chapter 8. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. So I want to just communicate to you fresh today that the gospel is not six alone, seven alone. It's eight as well. In other words, God wants to take you from death to that marriage through the understanding that the law cannot please, you cannot please God through the law into letting Christ be your pleasing unto God. Are you following me? This, you say, Eric, but this is so basic. Yeah, but this is the problem with so many people. The reason why they can't over, overcome sin is because they don't marry the last man, the fulfillment man, the man of complete filling, the one who pleases God, and they stay in this, this area of not being, not being completely free. Are you following me? And this, and this freedom is not based upon how much you can resolve. Sometimes we get, we get this, this thought in our mind that we've got to really resolve. I, just, I guess I just haven't resolved hard enough. And that's why I'm not free. Listen, freedom doesn't come by resolve. Freedom comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Freedom comes through Christ conquering for you. And all of your deliverance in your life comes from being married to the deliverer. And the, the thing about God in Hosea is he's trying to show them, I don't want to give you deliverance. He says, I want to be your deliverance. And, and so a lot of people get deliverance, if you, if you will. They get deliverance as if God says to them, hey, take, take this deliverance and now you just go on. 
God is saying, I don't want to do that. I want to be that. And so some people get free and then they walk back into what they left because they didn't receive the Lord as their deliverance. And they, they tried to get deliverance from the Lord or, or through the Lord. Are you following me? So often men reach through God to the things that God gives, and then they pull those things out of God and try to live on without him. A lot of people live this way, but God wants you to marry him. Jesus wants you to marry him and be uh, one who just resolves to or gives up into the enjoyment of his person. Are you following me? So you say, Eric, what did God tell you to speak about? Well, I just really wanted to talk about the gospel for a little bit, if that's all right. Let me give you one more example, and then I'll, I'll move into something else, and, and, and I pray the Lord would just cause you to believe again, fresh, believe the gospel, and, and not, not have to jump into other things. John and I were talking on the way here. Why do we talk about other things when God became a man? When God Almighty became a human being, that event is so incredible that it slips right past us sometimes. Listen to these words. God became a human being. To talk about anything else is a major digression. If God becoming a man is Christ as wisdom, I don't want to condescend to intellectual brilliance, if you know what I mean. I want to I live in the highest state of being, which is this, the realization of my God's love and work for me that I might receive him and effortlessly bear fruit unto him. That's the spiritual life. You follow me? So in, there's, a, there's a scripture in Hosea. But before I say that scripture in Hosea, I got to point out something to you in Revelation 5.5. 5. Just to save time, I'll tell you what happens there. John is a little worried because these books are being opened and, and no one is worthy to open up this one scroll. No one is worthy. I mean, you think about this. Everybody's there. Moses is there. He's not worthy. Elijah's there. He's not worthy. Enoch is there. He's not worthy. Everybody looks at David, the man after God's own heart. He goes, y'all know I ain't worthy. <laughs> Nobody's able to open up this scroll. And he begins to cry. And one of the elders leans over to John. And what does he say? He says, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he has overcome, and he is worthy. <laughs> Listen to those words. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he has overcome. He is worthy to open the scroll. And then the next picture, the lion turns into the lamb that looks like he's already, that, that looks like he's slain. He's still bleeding which means the blood of Jesus is still effectually powerful right now as it was the day that it was shed. <laughs> Praise God. So all this to say, in the book of Hosea, the people of God will not return to him. They keep going away. As a matter of fact, it says specifically, they're bent against turning towards me. God is saying this about his own people. And then he says this. He talks about what they deserve, which is ultimate wrath. How many know if you turn against God, you deserve to receive that which is due to those who fight against God. Are you, following? Are you following me? Okay, so this is what their due is the wrath of God. But God says this. Listen closely. He says, I am not like you, and I'm not going to come in wrath. Then he says, but I will roar 
like a lion and they will come. You say, Eric, what is the significance of that? Listen, if the lion in Revelation is the overcoming lamb of God, the lion in Revelation is the worthy one, then what he's saying in Hosea is, yes, they won't turn to me and I'm not going to come to them in wrath. I will overcome for them. And in that lion roar, they will come from the north, the south, the east and the west, and they will gather to me. In other words, the gospel will win their hearts. Praise God. Aren't you happy that the gospel is the way that it is? Praise God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all ye creatures here below, praise God. Hallelujah. So one of the things I was thinking about this morning was I was like, Lord, I really want to give them something. I really want to give them something fresh. And I felt like the Lord said, leave your notes at the, at the chair and come up to here and just talk to him from your heart. Is that all right? As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm not going to go very much longer, but I want to show you something in John 14. Starting with the gospel is the greatest starting ground. Can I come down here? Or is it going to ring? Okay. <laughs> Listen to this, guys. This is John 14. I want you to look at verse 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Here's the next verse. Look at this is crazy, okay? And a theologian would shoot an arrow at me for doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I feel like it's what the Lord wants me to do. <laughs> it says this. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? Have I? In other words, he's like, I've been with you such a long time, and you still don't get me. Are you following me? This is someone who is in the presence of Jesus. This is someone who's seeing the miracles of Jesus. This is someone who's hearing the teachings of Jesus. This is someone who's casting out demons by the power of Jesus. This is someone who is actually going out and spreading the word of the kingdom for Christ. And yet Jesus says to him, you still don't really know me. To me, reading that, I see myself. And I remember when I first got born again, I was so rocked by Jesus, and I started preaching on the street like crazy. I was hosting prayer meetings, and I was leading in, the, in, in, a, in a situation in the church. I was doing all kinds of things. I was even preaching in different places. And the, the truth of the matter is, is that it took time to realize that I knew a lot about Christ, but did not really know Christ personally. In other words, you can know the person of Christ by the scripture, and you can know the work of Christ in the scripture and still not know the heart of Christ. Okay, I want you to turn over to Matthew 11. And I'm going to tell you why this is so important in a second, but this is just life itself to me. 11.28, Jesus, again, you know these words, some of the most beautiful words ever uttered by, by God. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's almost as if he's saying, come to me, and I'll do the rest. 
Come to me, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I want you to notice these words here. In heart. Jesus says he's gentle and humble inside of his heart. I want you to say this with me. Say, my heart heart is what I am. am. Say this with me too. Say, everything about me me is cosmetic cosmetic to my heart. Let me explain what I mean by this. Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God judges the intents of the heart. In other words, your intentions come from your heart. Your words come from your heart. Jesus says that out of the heart comes thoughts, dot, 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 of all different kinds. So your thinking is an issue of your heart. What you are truly is your heart core. The yoke of your being is your heart. Actually, the scripture says to love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's the heart that even loves God. The heart is the issue. And when we talk about the new covenant, we talk about a brand new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will take out of them a heart of stone and I will put in them a heart of flesh, a heart that can know me. Now you have new thoughts. Now you have new words. Now you have new desires because the desires also come from the heart. You have the nucleus, the yoke of your being is changed out in the new covenant. Isn't that beautiful? But if we look at what Jesus' heart is like, he says right here two things about it. And to, to quote Charles Spurgeon, I actually, and I, to no gloating of, of my own, but I saw this and I thought it was amazing. And then I saw Charles Spurgeon wrote it and I literally was like, felt robbed. Because you, know, you feel like it's like your revelation. Then you see somebody wrote it 100 years ago. You're like, dang it. <laughs> well, it, this is the only self-description of the Messiah. The, entire of, the entirety of the Bible, this is the only time he tells you what he's like. Okay, Jesus is powerful, right? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, learn of me, I'm powerful. We know he is powerful, but that's not, he want, that's not what he wants you to look at. Jesus is wise, is he not? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, learn of me, I'm wise. Because that's not what he wants you to focus on. He wants you to know what his heart of hearts is like. And he says this, I am gentle, gentle and humble inside of my heart. So this means that Jesus' words coming out of a gentle and humble heart means that he speaks with gentleness and he speaks with humility. This means that when he thinks about you, it comes forth from a gentle thought of you and a humble thought of you. This means that whatever he does cosmetically is an expression of what he is in the yoke of his being, which is this, tender, patient, gentle, and humble. This is our Christ. Even as it says in, in um, Hosea chapter 11, as a matter of fact, if you just even look at these words, it is incredible to see that the God of the Old Testament is not different than the God of the New Testament. It says here in verse three, it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I 
took them in my arms. Have you, how many of you have, have kids? How many of you help them learn how to walk? Yeah, that's a long process sometimes, right? They're falling and they're falling and you're there and you're falling and you're there and they're falling. How many of you have experienced this in your Christian life? This is an expression of a gentle and lowly Christ who is committed to you. He's not going to abandon you and leave you by yourself. As Dane Ortland likes to say, the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug tightest. This is the kind of gentleness that Jesus is. How many of you have recognized that when he comes to you and you think he's going to be so harsh about something, he has such a sweet, tender tone that it breaks your bone? How many of you have had this happen before? You're like, oh, you're afraid to even face God because of what you've done. And there he is, and he pulls you in. And it, as it says here, it says here that I took them in my arms, and they didn't even know that I healed them. In other words, he healed them, and they didn't even know it. In other words, he wasn't doing it for recognition. He just did it because he loves you. Sometimes the Lord, when you feel like you're so damaged and broken, he says, come to me. And the moment you turn to him, he takes you in his tender arms, and you're like, oh, Lord, I have so many bruises, and you don't even know you're already healed in his arms. You thought you had all these warts and stuff on your face, and he, by touching you, he already healed them, and you think they're still there, but he tries to show you, I healed you, and you didn't even know it. How many of you have had this happen to you? I've had this happen to me more times than I would like to admit. But that's the commitment of one who's already married you. He's for you. He's with you. He will not abandon you. He's he's in this for the long haul. Praise God. Praise God. Say, Eric, why are you saying this? Because people have been thrown in the towel because they don't know his heart. People have been given up because they don't realize that he is this kind and this tender. It says here, I led them with bonds of love. This is our God. He leads with his love. It's not, hey, love is a side issue. That's his leading issue. He said, if you don't see God's love for you, you can't even be led by him. If you see him in any other light than lover of your soul, you're following somebody else. Are you following me? The love, the love of God is how he leads. Look at what it says next. He says, I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from from their jaw. Are you seeing this tender Christ? This humble God who literally takes the weight off of you and puts it upon himself? Wow. If your Christian life is heavy, then you've taken on a yoke that doesn't belong to Christ. I remember Bob Gladstone told us in Bible college, he says, it's not the yoke of Christ that's heavy, friend. It's your selfishness and your sin and your own will that's heavy. But if you'll come underneath his yoke, as a matter of fact, the rabbi's teaching to his students or his disciples was called his yoke. If you'll just take the things that I'm saying from my mouth and put them on, you'll find that it is kindness. You'll find that there's freedom and liberty in just giving yourself to listening to my voice. Mary knew it. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus because she wants that yoke on her life. (laughs) Praise God. The problem is you can't take that tender, kind yoke upon you if you don't sit and give him attention. Praise God. Look at what it says next. It says here, I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaw. Look at this. I bent down and fed them. I bent down 
and fed them. This, to me, is just, it's hard to actually compute up here that God bends down and gives and feeds you. The image itself is in, it's, it's too much for the human mind to be able to grasp that he who holds the wind in his fist and makes lightning for the rain, the clouds are his handiwork and in his palm of his hands are the depths of the earth. This God Almighty who tells the ostrich where to lay its egg, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, this God bends down to make sure you get the nourishment that you need. That's incredible, is it not? I say this to remind you of God's love for you in Christ Jesus, that he is for you and that he loves you. And the more you realize his heart, the more all these other images of a harsh God will vanish away. Some people are so condemned in their mind and in their Christian life, they can't make any progress because they're just under the weight of not being able to please God in their own minds. And they don't realize all they're doing is offering sacrifices to the idol of their own self-righteousness. They're just constantly laying down sacrifices to this idol that they've built of themselves. Listen to me. As long as you seek to hold up your spiritual persona in the mind of others, you find yourself in conflict with the life of God. But you, you, we, we must relinquish everything over to Christ, as one of our favorite quotes from John Wesley is, abandon everything that is not the merit of Jesus Christ and yielding to his spirit. Here is the gospel. Here is life. But you won't be able to do that if you see a Christ who's harsh towards you. A, a Christ that's proud and distant from you. A Christ that makes you have to obtain his presence. Do you understand what I mean? We, you, you say, Eric, I don't think this way. No, but we act this way. When you go into your room and you start an incantation in order to get God to visit you. You say, Eric, I don't do that. No, we do this because it's human to think that way. But when you believe the gospel, you realize there's no activity to obtain. He's just here. And it has nothing to do with you. <laughs> it's not because you're good enough. Because you'll never be. Let me save you the suspense. You're never going to do it. All right. But Jesus has done it. Listen to me, to the degree that you trust in your own self, you'll miss the wonderful, blissful experience of God's presence in your life. Here's the reason why some people, they're fasting and praying and fighting and twisting and turning. They're doing all of this sweating effort and they have no enjoyment of God's presence whatsoever. It's because they're still involved. Say, Eric, are you saying, Eric, are you, are you, Bashing fasting? I'm bashing fasting to get something. Because you can't manipulate him. And if you're trying to obtain something, it means you don't believe what he did. And the more you try to add to the finished work, you testify that you don't believe it. You say, Eric, what are you saying then? What do I do? What's my job? Enjoyment, my friend. You say, but could that, could that really be it? What about, what about all the scriptures in the Bible that talk about, you know, the things that I've, you know, like the lists. Let me tell you what those lists are. Those lists are descriptions of spirit people. 
to make it dummy-proof and foolproof. This is what it looks like when you yield to the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is what it looks like to be yielded to God. He knew there would be people that would profess that they are one with God and that they believe the gospel. So he says, no, this is what it looks like when you believe the gospel and you receive the Spirit, like this. Are you following me? It's not an, he didn't take away the old commandments to give you a whole new set of new ones. Are you following me? He shows us that the essence of the new covenant is found and summed up in one thing, to love God first. And in loving God, the inevitable result is you will overflow with that love to others. As Andrew Murray so brilliantly coined a phrase, he said, the love with which I love God and my brother is the love with which God has loved me. We love him because he first loved us. God demonstrated his love for us, already maxed out, demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I just come here today, and I feel like I want to take shoulder pads off you that you put on yourself. I just see people have just tied shoulder pads on themselves, and they're walking around with all this weight. Let me untie that for you with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and let me take it off of you so that you can be free to enjoy and dance and throw a party or two because of what Jesus has done and not what you can do. Are you following me? This makes people really upset when they're religious. Here's the reason, because you take away from them the thing that they put their confidence in and where they're getting their pride from. But if you put everything on Jesus Christ, then the religious man gets upset. I was preaching on this not that long ago, and a man in the front row was getting so upset, he stood up and slammed his foot down, walked out the back and kicked the door open to leave, to leave. And all I was doing was telling them to put all their faith and trust in Jesus, and then God will do the rest. <laughs> but he's mad. But this is what Paul says in Galatians. He says that this is a stumbling block to them. He says, if I preach the grace of God, he says, that's why they're persecuting me is because I'm taking away from them all the stuff they're putting their confidence in. Oh, praise God. Praise God. Man, when, I, when I talk about this gospel, I literally feel like a divine energy is going through my entire being. Why? Because it's in the gospel you receive the Spirit. You receive the Spirit in the gospel. The love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost. And that statement itself is spoken in the expectation of the fulfillment of and the glorious experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I say to you today that the gospel is not the runway for the plane to take off. The gospel is the engine in that plane. And that every day you will live by the light of the Lamb. You remember in the scripture it says that there is no need for a light or a sun in heaven. S-U-N in heaven, you know this. Because the Lamb shall be the lamp. It also says that the Lamb shall be the tabernacle. So you see that the Lamb is how you see and the Lamb is where you live in the world to come. You understand? And so you say, what is that representative of? The lamb is where you see the nature of a gentle and lowly personal Christ. The lamb is where you see the sacrifice on your behalf. The lamb is a revelation of the person and work of the man, 
Christ Jesus. It's symbolic of, and it is more than symbolic, it is the expression of the gospel itself in one statement, the Lamb. And so when you look at the world to come that we will see by the Lamb lamp in this life too, when you erect the Lamb to where he needs to be, he will be light for you. And he will be a tabernacle for you. A tabernacle of refuge and strength and peace and joy so that what you experience in this life has no bearing on whether or not you know gospel joy and gospel peace. Are you following me? You say, Eric, but there's all kinds of things going on in my life and my marriage and my finances. Listen, I'm telling you right now that when you, when you put Christ in his proper place, a thousand problems are solved all at once. You say, does that mean God is going to make my life completely perfect if I put him right where he's supposed to be? I'll, I'm telling you that when you put him where he's supposed to be, you don't even require to have a perfect life because you found that your joy and your peace come from somewhere that has nothing to do with this life. Are you following me? So that you can say, you can say, and I'll close with this. Maybe the, maybe the crew can come up here, the, the band. But I'll close with this. This is the kind of gospel that I'm trying to explain and remind us of today. Richard Warmbrand is a, was a Romanian pastor, and he was put in solitary confinement for seven years. Some of us can't even be alone with God for seven hours. <laughs> this isn't seven hours. This isn't seven days. This isn't seven weeks. This is seven years of solitary confinement. He's fed one slice of bread a week. He's dying slowly. Are you following me? And in the midst of him in this horrible situation, they take him out of the prison and they put him at one end of the table and they put a Bible in front of him. And he hasn't seen a Bible in seven years. He wants to get his hands on that Bible and see if he can take it back to his cell, but they keep it out of his reach. And they look at the man and he looks at the guard and the guard gives him a mirror. He, remember, he hasn't seen himself in seven years and his teeth have fallen out from lack of nourishment. His face is sunken in. And he hasn't seen what he looks like in seven years. He turns the mirror around to face him. And Richard sees himself for the first time. He's shocked, doesn't even recognize himself. The dark circles under his eyes, hair loss. He's just, he looks like he's a skeleton. And the man, the, the guard, looks at him and he points at the Bible. And he goes, your Bible says that you are made in the image of God. Is that how ugly your God is? And Richard Wormbrand turns the mirror around to face him. And he says this. He says, my God has many faces, and it is my greatest joy to wear his face of sufferings. My question to you, is that, is that the gospel that you know? You say, what does that mean? Okay, let me, let me put it to you like this. When he was released from prison, they came to him. Many people came to him, and they said to him, he says this with his own mouth. You can watch this on the internet. They said to him, you must have been in hell there. And then he says, oh, no, no, hell is to be without his presence. That's the gospel. That you can take my Bible, you can take my wife, you can take my kids, you can take my freedom, you can take anything you want, but you can't touch his presence in me. That's the gospel. They said to him, speaking specifically of this experience that he had in prison, he says, oh, we knew his kisses. We were the bridegroom in his embrace. We knew his embrace and his kisses. Oh, I just want to, I'm not trying to call anybody to the front. I'm not trying to 
get you to do anything but believe the gospel again and to realize what he has accomplished for you and by faith to enter into the reception, a life of perpetually receiving the Spirit by the same means of the gospel. Remember what Paul says to the Galatians? How did you receive the Spirit? Did you do it because you got, you were just good enough? Did you receive the Spirit because you kept the law? Did you do it? Did you receive the Spirit because you fasted? Did you receive the Spirit because you did good deeds? How did you receive the Spirit? And they're thinking to themselves, well, what did we do? Then he says, was it not by faith in the hearing of the gospel? In other words, let's just divorce ourselves from any fulfillment or gratification independent of Christ in the gospel. Let us give ourselves wholly over, freshly today, freshly. Let's do it. I'll do it with you right now. Let's do it again to abandon ourselves to the exaltation of Christ's person and his glorious work. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise you, God. Praise you.